Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible on your phone, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, If you are joining us for the very first time on a Sunday, we are in a teaching series where we are just marching all the way through the book of 1 Peter in the Bible. Uh, 1 Peter really is a letter that a guy named Peter, hopefully you picked up on that part, wrote to a bunch of ancient Christians uh, in the ancient world. And the primary thing that Peter is trying to get across in this particular letter is he's trying to help the people that he writes to know how they should relate to the people and systems and structures in the world around them as followers of Jesus. So these people were Christians, but they were living in a society that did not value or even much like Christians. And so Peter wants to help them learn how to live faithfully and helpfully in that type of environment. That's the big idea behind the book of 1 Peter. And he wants us to help, he wants to help us learn that as well. So the language that we introduced in week one of the series for how Peter wants us to relate to the world around us is the phrase distinctive influential presence. If you weren't here for that, feel free to go back and grab that podcast. Week one of the series, we said that the idea that Peter wants to communicate to us about how we should relate to the world around us is this idea of distinctive influential presence. So just to quickly break that down, if you missed it, Peter wants us as followers of Jesus not to conform to the world, but rather to live distinctively from the world. He wants us not to war and rebel and fight against the world around us, but rather to influence it by showing them a better way forward. And then he wants us not to withdraw from the world as followers of Jesus, but rather he wants us to remain constantly present within it. That's what Peter wants us to do as followers of Jesus. He wants us to embody this distinctive, influential presence. And so what we're doing is spending the rest of this series, really for the next few months, unpacking what that looks like exactly. How do we become that type of people in the world that we inhabit? So in the passage that we're going to cover today, Peter is going to press in on that first part of that phrase. He's going to talk a lot about what it looks like for us to become distinctive as God's people. And the language that Peter is going to use for that in this passage is that we should pursue holiness in our relationship to the world, that we should become holy as God's people. Now, I am aware that there may not be a word out there with less street cred than the word holiness, right? Like bet money, this week, if you were having a conversation with a, a friend who was not a follower of Jesus, you did not just casually drop the word holiness in that conversation, right? Because that word has all sorts of off-putting connotations to people. I think generally the reason for that is that most people assume that the word holy simply means something like morally pure, or maybe even morally superior 
That's the vibe that people get from that word. And because of that, it's almost impossible for most people to hear the word holy without thinking of a phrase like holier than thou, right? It almost feels judgy just to use the word in some ways. But I think all of that is really unfortunate. Because in the scriptures, the idea of holiness, the idea of God's people being holy is actually a beautiful idea. It's a very compelling idea. And while the word holiness or the idea of holiness is not always disconnected from the idea of moral purity, it is also so much more than that. It's so much more than that idea. So the word holy that Peter is going to use in 1 Peter is the Greek word hagios. Can you say that? Hagios. You guys know Greek. Good job. So hagios is this word that if you were to literally translate it just means something like different or unique or unlike the things around it. So I think probably the best word in English would be a word like distinct. When the Bible talks about something being holy, what it means is that that thing is noticeably different, noticeably distinct from the other things around it or the other things like it. That is the broadest meaning of the word holy. So in light of that, in the Bible, all sorts of things can be holy. So obviously, God is described as holy. God's people are called to be holy. That's a lot of what we're going to get into today. But also, according to the Bible, certain buildings and structures can be holy. Certain days of the week can be holy. Even certain types of clothing can be described as holy in the Bible. So obviously, when the Bible says that those things are holy, it doesn't mean that those things are morally pure, right? Physical buildings and structures can't be moral or immoral, unless, of course, it's like a Chick-fil-A restaurant, and then obviously it's holy. But uh, physical structures can't be moral or immoral, right? So it must mean something different there. When the Bible calls those types of things holy, it isn't trying to say that those things are morally pure. It simply means that those things are different and unique from the other things like them. Is that making sense? So I don't know if you guys remember this, but when I was a kid, uh, we would play these little games. It would come in like magazines that I would get in the mail, and it was like it would have a drawing, and it would ask you to find the thing that was not like all the other things. So it's like, you know, there's like all these cows, and they all just have black spots except one has no spots. Um, that is kind of a picture of what the idea of holiness means. When we talk about something being holy, it just means what stands out. Something that is holy stands out because it's different and distinct from the other things around it or the other things like it. That's what it means for something to be holy. Now, I think the other misunderstanding that people have about holiness is that being holy is only about what you don't do. That holiness is just about the things you abstain from. So to be holy in this framework is just to abstain from like smoking and drinking and having sex or things that people consider to be taboo in one form or another. And I think, just if I were to speak honestly with you guys, I think this understanding, that understanding of the word holy is one of the primary reasons that Christians are often more known for the things that they're against than the things that they're for because we've defined holiness mainly about the behaviors we don't participate in. And to be sure, early followers of Jesus were known for a lot of the things they did not participate in. So that's a piece of the puzzle, but it's far from all of it. They were just as defined by the things that they did do that no one else did. 
So just to give you a few examples from history. There are countless stories out there of early Christians during the spread of disease and sickness in certain cities. So you would have things like the bubonic plague or whatever it might be where sickness spread across certain cities and regions. And what would happen during those spreads of sicknesses is that everyone would flee the city. Everyone would leave. Usually even doctors would leave the city, but Christians would stay behind and care for the sick, even sometimes contracting the disease themselves. That's a picture of what it meant for the early church to be holy. There are other stories in the first and second centuries from Christians saving children from something called exposure. If you don't know what that was, basically in the first and second century, people in society would take unwanted children and babies and they would take them out to desolate places and they would leave them out in the conditions to die. It was called exposure. And so what early Christians became known for in a number of these places is early Christians would hang out around these places where people would discard these unwanted children, and they would scoop the children up and effectively adopt them and raise them as their own. That's a picture of what it meant for the early church to be holy. And I'll give you one more. There are stories of governors that were sent by ancient emperors to persecute Christians, to basically eradicate Christianity where it was growing. But what would happen is that once these governors would get there— they would realize that they couldn't do anything to persecute the Christians because the Christians were the only people in that society caring for the poor. In fact, in some areas, the Christians were doing a better job caring for the poor than the government was. And so they would get there and realize they couldn't do anything to the Christians or else there would be an uprising in the society because Christians were doing such a persistent job caring for the poor. So I bring all of these things up. My point in bringing those examples up is to show you that those things that the Christians did in society are every bit as much descriptions of their holiness than anything they abstained from, right? So, so Christians were just as known for doing the things that no one else would do as they were for not doing the things that everybody else did. Does that make sense? That's part of what it meant for the Christians to be holy, so when we talk today about being holy and distinct as followers of Jesus, we're not talking about simply abstaining from certain immoral practices. That's included, but that's not all. We're also talking about us doing the things that no one else will do for the good of the society around us. And all of this is done. The reason that we pursue holiness as a group of people is to show the world around us what God is like. That's the purpose described for holiness throughout the scriptures, is that by living holy, distinct lives, that holiness in us would point people towards the beauty and the goodness that is God and his kingdom. That's our purpose of being holy. And that is an absolutely vital thing to participate in as followers of Jesus. Just to give you an idea of the importance, the centrality of God's people being holy in the Bible, look at this verse with me from the book of Hebrews. It says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Did y'all catch how forceful that statement is? It just said that without us being holy as God's people, without us living different and distinct lives in the world that we're a part of, that, quote, no one will see the Lord. Are y'all seeing how important this is for us to get as followers of Jesus? The stakes are incredibly high. 
According to Hebrews and 1 Peter and plenty of other places in the scriptures, us living distinct, holy lives is the means by which people will encounter who God is. That's what we're going for. So today, I want us to get into how and why Peter says that we as God's people should become holy. But real quickly, before we get into any of this, and thanks for enduring what might be the longest introduction to a passage ever, before we get into that, I need to just spend a minute on the word therefore, the first word of our passage. What we're about to read starts with the word therefore. I am not exaggerating when I say that that word therefore is quite possibly the most important word in this passage. The reason I say that is because that word, that first word, connects everything Peter is about to say to the last 12 verses of 1 Peter, where he has just talked about the importance of us having our hope set on Jesus, where he talks about the fact that Jesus has rescued us out of our sin. The reason I care that you get that is because if you don't understand that, you will get the wrong idea about the passage we're about to read. If, if we're not careful, we could read everything that Peter's about to say about us pursuing holiness as a group of people and think that the message he's trying to get across is that once we change our behavior to be better, then God will accept us. It would be easy for us to think that that's the message. That is not the message. That's not the message of the gospel. In fact, that's the exact opposite of the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is... Jesus saves us out of our sin. He already accepts us through his work on the cross. And then once we grasp that and as we internalize that, our behavior begins to become different. Does that make sense? But you have to get it in that order. You cannot flip that order or you miss Christianity entirely. So I want to make sure we understand that that's what Peter is saying. I say that specifically because if you're new to City Church, if you're brand new here, and especially if you're here and, and you would say you don't really know where you're at with the whole Jesus thing yet, first of all, we want you to know we're so glad that you're here. So glad that you're here. We love that you're here. We love that you're learning and asking questions. We welcome that here. But just so you know, today's teaching is one of those that won't really apply to you directly, okay? Because everything Peter's about to say works on the assumption that you already follow Jesus, that you've already been rescued by Jesus. And so I would hate for you to get the wrong idea about what he's saying. Does that make sense? Okay. With that being said, let's take a look at what Peter says about holiness. So in order to sort of break this down, I want to split it into three sections from the passage. First, we'll talk about the path to holiness. Second, we'll talk about the reason for holiness. And lastly, we'll talk about the price of holiness. First, let's talk about the path to holiness. So, right in the opening line of our passage, Peter tells us exactly how we are to go about being holy. Take a look with me at verse 13 in our passage. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there for just a second. So, Peter says that in order for us to pursue holiness, whether that's doing things that nobody else does or not doing things that everybody else does, either way, you will need to, quote, prepare your mind for action. That phrase, preparing our minds for action, if it were to be more literally translated, it would actually read, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a vivid sentence, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. So, 
The idea that Peter is sort of referencing there is that in that society, in his society, many of the men would wear robes as sort of just their daily attire. And so if those men wanted to run or fight or play sports or do anything remotely physically active, what they would do is they would sort of bunch their robe together and they would tuck it into their belt that they were wearing, and it was a way of preparing for action. It made your legs more mobile, if you want to think about it that way. Very odd to us today, but that's the way they would go about it back then. So Peter sort of borrows that imagery of girding up someone's loins and applies it to our minds. He applies it to the life of our minds. He says, essentially, if we want to become holy as God's people, we will have to prepare our minds in that direction. So in today's language, we might use an expression like roll up your sleeves or get your hands dirty. What he's describing is this active participation in becoming holy and becoming distinct from the world around us. And part of how we do that, Peter says, is that we should be sober-minded. So Peter lumps in the imagery of drunkenness and sobriety, and he applies it to how we think. So just consider that for a moment. So one of the things that you do when you are drunk is that you almost always take the path of least resistance, right? Or so I've heard in every funny story about a drunk person ever, right? This is what you do. What drunkenness invites you to do or forces you to do is to take the path of least resistance. So if the path of least resistance is to sleep with a stranger that you find attractive, you do that. If it's to punch somebody in the face because they're getting on your nerves, you do that. Uh, If it's to pee off a four-story parking garage directly onto the roof of cop cars while the cops are still in them, leading to your immediate arrest, that is what you do. Or maybe that one's more specific to my friend Garrett in college. But either way, that's what you do, right? When you are drunk, you take the path of least resistance. You mostly lose the ability to think through consequences of your actions, or at least long-term consequences of your actions, and so you just do what feels easiest in that moment. So you've got to think that at least part of what Peter has in mind in this passage is that pursuing holiness looks like being sober-minded, which means that being holy is going to require us to not always take the path of least resistance in our life. Uh, bearing with and forgiving difficult people is not the path of least resistance. Are you following me? Uh, Guarding against sexual immorality between you and the person you're dating is not the path of least resistance. Devoting a significant portion of your income each and every month to generosity is not the path of least resistance. But often... The path of least resistance in life is not the best path. And when we follow Jesus, what it invites us into is taking the best path, not necessarily the easiest path. That's part of what being sober-minded is all about. Now, as I was thinking through all of this language in the passage yesterday, my mind immediately went to how we talk about our leisure time how we talk about uh, the way that we consume media in our life. So whether that's TV or Netflix or the news or social media, whatever it is that you kind of gravitate towards in your spare time, for an awful lot of us, before we do any of those things, before we watch Netflix for a little while or scroll through Instagram for a bit, 
we say something like, this is a really common expression, we say something like, I just need to turn my brain off. You ever heard people say that? And I'm not picking on you. I have used that term, okay? I've used that phrase before. So I'm not, this is equal opportunity offense here, right? So people will say, I think a lot of us will say, oh man, I just need to, I need to turn my brain off for a bit. I need to watch some Netflix or whatever it is. And listen, I know that some of us have enormously stressful day jobs and daily rhythms. And so in no way am I trying to say that you don't sometimes need to decompress, okay? Feel free to do that. But what stuck out to me was that phrase, right? I need to turn my brain off. Because I think we all are aware you can't actually do that, right? Like we, we all realize that you can't actually turn your brain off. If you turn your brain off, uh, you no longer are alive. We know that. So what's happening there is not actually that we're turning our brain off. It's actually that we're just becoming passive in how we consume those types of media. What we mean is that we're turning our active participation off in our minds. And what stuck out to me about that is obviously that's concerning when it comes to our consumption of media because just so we all know, the media that we consume is discipling us to think in a certain way. And it doesn't matter whether your brain's on or off, that's happening, right? It's teaching us to think a certain way about ourselves and about the world around us. So it's concerning on that front, but what it made me think of is the scriptures seem to be saying that there's a way to take that sort of passive, brain-off, hands-off posture, not just towards Netflix or social media, but towards life in general. So I wonder if sometimes we're actually turning our brains off when it comes to more important things in our life. I wonder if sometimes uh, we're turning our brain off when it comes to the health of our relationship with the person we're dating. I wonder if sometimes we're turning our brain off when it comes to our marriage, our relationship with our spouse. I wonder if sometimes we're, we're turning our brains off when it comes to relationships with other followers of Jesus that we could be pouring into and helping to learn how to follow Jesus. I wonder if we're turning our brains off when it comes to building relationships with friends and coworkers and classmates that we come into contact with on a regular basis and don't know Jesus yet. And most importantly of all, uh, I wonder if we're turning our brains off when it comes to fighting certain recurrent sins in our life. I wonder if we're turning our brains off when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, when it comes to fighting for holiness in our life. A pastor that I listen to a lot is fond of saying that nobody drifts towards holiness. Nobody drifts that way. So I I think God has more for us than that we would just float through our lives with both our eyes closed, turning our brain off to the realities around us. I think Peter would say, hey, let's wake up. Let's be dialed into the things happening around us. Let's be dialed into the things we're letting into our mind and our imagination. He would tell us to be sober-minded and alert about all of that. So maybe the most practical next step for some of us after today is that we would confess to others where we have been, quote, turning our brains off. Maybe we need to have a conversation with our spouse where we say, hey, you know what? I've been turning my brain off when it comes to us and our relationship, and that's not okay, and I don't want it to continue on that trajectory. 
maybe some of us need to have a conversation with people in our life group where we say, hey, I'm, I've been turning my brain off when it comes to contributing to your spiritual growth. And I'm actually called to pour into you and help you follow Jesus. And so I don't want to continue on that trajectory. Will you hold me accountable for that? Maybe some of us need to talk to those that we're really close to and say, hey, I've been turning my brain off when it comes to fighting this particular sin in my life. And I want you to hold me to it. I want you to hold me to fighting against it on a regular basis. I don't know what the particulars are. But maybe for some of us, the most practical step we could take in pursuing holiness is to confess to others where we've been turning our brain off and let that be the first step towards becoming sober-minded and alert and aware of the things happening around us, aware of the things happening in our mind. And Peter says in verse 13 of our passage that all of this hinges on setting your hope on Jesus and where he's taking the world. So if you weren't here last week for Marcus's teaching, would highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. What Marcus talked about is how our behavior, the way that we live, is actually rooted in where our hope lies. That if we don't believe in who Jesus is and where he's taking the world, if we don't believe that Jesus is bringing a perfect world to bear at some point on the horizon, we will always need the things in our life now to create a perfect world for us. And so if we're going to have any shot at this, if we're going to be sober-minded and alert, if we're going to prepare our minds for actions, we have to continually set and reset our hope on Jesus. Again, all of that was in last week's teaching. Feel free to go back and listen to it. For today, let's move on to the next section. The next idea that Peter is trying to get across is the reason for holiness. Next, Peter gets into why we should be holy. He gets at all this starting in verse 14. Take a look with me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the crux of this passage, I think, is verse 15 and 16. They both say that we should be holy because God himself is holy. Did you guys catch that? That's the big idea that Peter is trying to get across in our entire passage for today, that, that our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus should be motivated by God's distinctiveness. Our desire to be different is driven by him being different. The scriptures are very clear that there is no one like God. There's no one as good as he is. There's no one as faithful as he is. There's no one as powerful as he is. And specifically, there's no one as holy as he is. So driven by the distinctiveness of the God we worship, we are also called to pursue a similar type of distinctiveness as God's people. That's the reason we're called to be holy. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back about being better than other people. Not to be distinctive for the sake of being distinctive. We are to be distinctive because that's who God is. That's our motivation. That's the reason for holiness. Then next, Paul moves into what might seem like an odd sentence to a lot of us. Look with me at verse 17 in our passage. Verse 17 says this, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter says, if God is your father, conduct yourself with fear towards him. Does that sound weird to anybody else? 
just on first read. I think we tend to think of father-to-child relationships more in terms of love and acceptance, not so much in terms of fear, right? So I think that's one reason that this reads weird to us. So what exactly is Peter trying to say? Well, first, I think it's probably helpful to note that parent-to-child relationships in Peter's society had a pretty different dynamic than our parent-to-child relationships do today, at least a lot of the time. So today, we tend to be very focused on being friends with our kids, right? I hear parents say this all the time. They just want to be their son or their daughter's best friend. Now, to some degree, that's a great desire, right? Wanting to be relationally close with your kids is a fantastic thing to want. I absolutely hope that both of my kids think of me as their friend. But I also hope that they don't think of me as only their friend, right? So my oldest kid is four years old right now. If he sees his relationship with me exactly the same way as his relationship with his four-year-old best friend at preschool, I don't know that that's a win, right? Like if you come over to my house this week and me and my four-year-old are arguing about who gets the last juice box, and we have to appeal to my wife, Anna, to settle the dispute between us, you're going to correctly conclude that something is very wrong with our family, right? Because the nature of our relationship should be a little bit different than his relationship with his peers. That's just the nature of parenting. Hopefully, our relationship with each other includes friendship, but hopefully it's not exclusively friendship. There is a, and I, I, I realize how much we hate this word in our society, but there's a certain hierarchy in our relationship, right? I, I'm almost 30 years older than my son. I have just a tad more life experience than he does, right? And there should be, on some level, as he gets older, there should be an awareness of that fact. So a lot of you guys know, once you turn, it's usually sometime around your mid-20s, you all of a sudden have this revelation where you're like, oh my gosh, my parents aren't idiots. They're actually geniuses. (laughs) And turns out they've gone through a lot of the same things I have. And maybe I should take some advice from them from time to time. So the idea that, that Peter is trying to get across is if there's that kind of difference between the relationship between an earthly father and his kids, well then how much more is the difference between God our Father and us as human beings? How much more should there be an awareness that we're not on the same level as God? God sees things from a slightly higher plane than we do, right? There should be an awareness that that God knows more than we do. God is smarter than we are. And so here's my point with all of this. The word that Peter uses for that dynamic in our relationship with God is fear. Now, to be sure, fear should not be the only characteristic of our relationship with God. That would be equally unhealthy in a different direction, right? So It shouldn't be that fear is our only dynamic with God, but that doesn't mean that fear shouldn't be a dynamic at all, shouldn't be a characteristic of that relationship at all. There are all sorts of commands in the Bible for God's people to fear him, not meaning we should be terrified of him, but that we are to have a healthy respect and reverence and deference towards him. There should be an understanding that we are not on the same level as God, that he, at the end of the day, is smarter than we are. So 
let me just ask all of us in the room today, do you believe that? Is that how you see God? Like, do you believe, do you actually believe that God is smarter than you? And I don't mean in theory. I think most of us here would agree with that in theory. What I mean is looking at the way you live on a regular basis, is it true that you believe God is smarter than you? Because if in your life there are things that are very contrary from what the Scriptures clearly teach, and you have no real interest in doing anything to rectify that in your mind, what you have just revealed that you believe is that you don't believe God is smarter than you. That you think his commands are actually just suggestions that you can take or leave whenever you want. And Peter would say that what you are missing, if that's the dynamic between you and God, what you are missing in that relationship is fear. You're missing a healthy understanding that God is on a different level than we are. And he's saying that when you realize that you are God's kid, you will not use that as a reason to shrug off any of his commands that you don't particularly like. What you will do is you will lean in and you will listen and you will be dialed in to what he says all the more. That's the nature of our relationship with God. See, my fear is that some of us view God as if he's little more than a consultant. He's there, and maybe he's got some helpful knowledge, and, and maybe I, I reference things that he says when I feel like I need them or when I'm a little bit confused or I don't know what direction to take. But at the end of the day, we feel totally comfortable accepting or rejecting the things that he says. But that is to fundamentally misunderstand the relationship between us and God. If we can look at the holiness and the fairness and the just nature of who God is and conclude from seeing that, oh, it doesn't really matter how I live, then we may have just revealed that we aren't truly God's kids. That's what Peter's getting at in this passage. That is what Peter means by all of this. That's why Peter can say, if you call on him as your father, then you will conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. All this brings us to the last thing that Peter unpacks, and that's the price of holiness. The price of holiness. So lastly, Peter wants us to know the price that was paid for us to become holy and distinct. This comes from verses 18 through 21. Take a look with me. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed, we'll come back to that word in just a second, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So finally... Peter says in our passage that all holiness is made possible by knowing that we have been ransomed by Jesus. That word ransom is exactly what it sounds like. It's a price paid to, to rescue someone out of, to purchase them out of a harmful situation of some sort. So in Peter's day, that word was usually associated with the idea of human trafficking. 
A person who was enslaved could only go free from their situation if they were ransomed, if someone saw it fit to go and purchase them out of that situation and grant them freedom. But then Peter adds to that picture saying that you and I, followers of Jesus, we weren't just ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold. We weren't just purchased out with money. We were ransomed out by something far more lasting and enduring. We were ransomed out by the blood of Jesus. So what Peter is referring to, of course, is the cross. Jesus said that he came to give his life as a, quote, ransom for many. He says that in the Gospels. His very life was the ransom that made our holiness possible. Jesus came to you and I when we were helpless, when we were utterly unable to set ourselves free from anything, and he purchased us out of that situation. He paid the price for us to go free. He gave us our freedom at great cost, and he paid the price for us to become his, for us to become holy. And there's another important word in that passage, the word precious. Peter calls the blood of Jesus that ransomed us out of our sin precious. So what does it mean for something to be precious? Well, on one level, something being precious just means that it's valuable, right? means that it's valuable. But not just valuable in general. Something being precious means that it's valuable to you in particular, So some things are valuable to most anybody. If if you have a family member that hands down to you a large sum of money, that's valuable to most anybody, right? If you have a family member that gifts you a large plot of land, that's valuable to you no matter who you are because you can sell it or whatever and you get proceeds from it. Valuable things have universal significance to everyone, but precious things have particular significance, They have particular significance. Things that are precious are valuable to you regardless of whether or not they are valuable in general. Does that make sense? So uh, when I was in college, a family member of mine uh, gave me a Bible that belonged to my late granddad. Uh, I didn't know him very well. He died when I was three. Um, But I heard stories from everyone that he was just this incredible, mighty man, servant of God in every regard. And so I remember when I was in college and I had begun to follow Jesus and I was given this Bible, I remember just opening it up and being almost brought to tears by all the notes he had written in the margins. It was just amazing to me. Like I I flipped through it over and over again. I would read stuff over and over again because that Bible was precious to me. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it was valuable, right? I mean, I could have probably taken that Bible to a used bookstore and they would have given me like maybe five bucks for it, right? Probably less than that because it's a Bible and it had somebody else's handwriting all over it. But it didn't matter whether or not it was valuable in general. It was of particular value to me. It was precious. And so I didn't sell it to a used bookstore. I cherished it. I honored it. I revered it on a regular basis. And so I've got to imagine that that's the type of posture Peter has in mind in this passage when it comes to our awareness of what Jesus accomplished for us. You've got to think that there is nothing more valuable to God the Father than the blood, the very life of his one and only Son. And yet, to purchase you and I out of our sin and into his family, God gave that up. 
He gave that up. He gave the precious blood of Jesus. He sent his only son on a rescue mission to give his life for you and for me so that we might be purchased out of our sin. And Peter is saying that once you get that, once you internalize that, once that registers in your heart more and more, you will begin to become holy as a result. The cost of our ransom was of infinite cost to God. And knowing that should make it precious to us. When you and I look at the blood of Jesus as followers of Jesus, when we look at the blood shed on the cross, what we should see is the price paid for us to become different and unique and distinct from the world around us. That's our ransom. So I'd love to just end this morning with a question for you to consider. Here's the question. Is Jesus precious to you? Is Jesus precious to you? And listen, that question is a whole lot more practical than you think it is. Because if the cross of Jesus is just one place that you get your meaning, your satisfaction, your joy your acceptance, if it's just one place that you get those things, well, then that's not precious, right? That's just that it's one good option out of a lot of good options. But if Jesus is precious to you, if the cross is not just one place you get your value, but the place that you get your value, that'll change how you live. It'll absolutely change how you live. It will make you alert and sober-minded as a result. It'll lead to you rolling up your sleeves, getting your hands dirty in the pursuit of holiness. It will lead us to seeing God not just as a buddy that offers suggestions for our life, but as the God of the universe that we revere as he was meant to be revered. So listen, I get that probably most of us in the room would say that the blood of Jesus is valuable, right? We sing songs about that. I get that we would say it was valuable. We all see the theoretical value in it. What I'm asking, what I want to know is, is it precious to you? That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. To a Christian, the blood of Jesus is valuable. To a non-Christian, it's just one good option out of many. And if Jesus is precious to us, that will inevitably transform how we live and what we live for on a regular basis. Just imagine with me what could happen if City Church, or even the church at large in Knoxville, the church at large in the world, what would happen if all of those people became known as people who lived distinctively? What could happen particularly if followers of Jesus became known not just as those people who are against abortion, but as the people who would adopt each and every unwanted pregnancy in our city? What would happen if followers of Jesus in Knoxville became not just the people who talked about racial reconciliation, but the people who fought for it? What could happen if followers of Jesus in our city became known for being the only people who could disagree with other people without demonizing other people? Can you imagine the difference that would make? 
That is what Peter is going for when he calls us to live distinct, holy lives as followers of Jesus. He's not just asking us to become more morally righteous. He's asking for us to be this distinct community, this city on the hill that points to the glory and worth of God. And that day by day, as people begin to notice that, they will be drawn to who God is and they'll want to get in on that too. May it be so. Let me pray for us.